The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. Let's go ahead and read that, and then I'll give some introductory thoughts here. Beginning at verse 11, about this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Have you ever been deeply offended by someone? Not just anybody. Have Have you ever been deeply offended by someone that you were absolutely convinced loves you. I know I have. You know, I actually, I actually have a pretty thick skin. Most things just roll off of me. Not a whole lot sticks to me. People can be critical and I'm just like, whatever. But there's something about when somebody knows you and when they, they love you, somebody that you have spent deep time in fellowship with and knows you intimately, something about their words carries a different weight. They have a different impact. When they offer up a painful criticism, to me, my mind immediately jumps to Defense. It registers that loudly, and then immediately I start running this inward dialogue. Not outwardly, but inwardly. I start arguing with it. I start trying to defend myself. Well, it's not this. It must be that. It, it, it is the cognitive dissonance of it all. On the one hand, I'm sure that they deeply love me, and then on the other hand, they're telling me something that is painful to hear. And, and, and when it's happened, my mind begins to throw up defenses and justifications. I argue with their perspective in my mind. And I come up with reasons that it can't be true. But in the end, their words stick. It's the reason I'm wrestling. Why do they stick? Because I know they would only speak that painful truth if it is something that they see and something that I need to consider. I'm thankful for those voices in my life. One of the things about my wife, my wife's name is Crystal, and we we lovingly joke about the fact that her name means transparent because she is 100% transparent. And she is one of the voices in my life who will always tell me the truth even if I don't like it, even if it's not comfortable for, for me to hear. And I need those voices. Imagine for a moment a spiritual mirror reflecting back to us the truest version of ourselves. Now, we may not always like what we see, but the mirror shows us where we need to improve, where we need to grow. Now, imagine that holding up that mirror is a loved one, and they're pointing out to us an aspect of ourselves that needs work. The reflection may be uncomfortable, might even be offensive to us, but it's done out of love and concern for our well-being. And the arrow of offense is meant to pierce through our defenses so that we address the issue. It's meant to stick. It's meant to pierce our pride. It's an opportunity for self-reflection, for growth. Just like a a gardener goes through his garden and deadheads off all the flowers or or prunes back the vines, sometimes the greatest opportunity for growth 
are the painful moments in life where we are confronted with something that needs to change. And, and this is what is happening in our passage today. The author of Hebrews has some critical words for his audience. His assessment of their maturity is, is painful for them to hear. But that pain is meant for good. It's meant to provoke them into action. It is the faithful wounds of a friend. Now in our passage today, our author emphasizes three things for us to consider and we'll look at that through an outline that goes like this. In verse 11, the importance of hearing. The importance of hearing. In verses 12 to 13, the importance of maturity. The importance of maturity. In verse 14, the importance of practice. The importance of practice. Now, Hebrews chapter 5, in these four verses, in 11 through 14, is part of a, a larger letter or epistle that is written to a community of Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. They are facing persecution and pressure that is tempting them to return to their traditional Jewish practices under the Levitical system. And the author of Hebrews, who is not identified, wrote the letter to encourage these believers to remain steadfast in their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Despite the difficulties that they're facing, his hope is that through writing this letter, they will continue to grab hold of Jesus and cling to him. They'll see him as better than any other option. So last week we looked in at verses 4, uh, 11 or through 5, 10. And we discovered that the one that they're to be putting hope in is the compassionate high priest. In the last couple of verses of chapter 4, we looked at the compassionate heart of our high priest. In verses 1 through 5, we looked at the gentle work of our high priest, how he, how he comes at us gently. He deals with our weaknesses gently because he empathizes with us. And then in the last few verses from last week, in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 5, we learned about the eternal role of the high priest. Now the author stated that the kind of high priest that Jesus is is far better than what they have in the Levitical system. Jesus is a high priest from a different order than the Levitical priests. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He is from the priestly order that predates the tribe of Levi. He's of the order of Melchizedek. And in addition, this, old, this older order of priests can carry the office of both priest and king. So now Jesus can fulfill both roles. This was something that the Levites could never do. And more than that, because God raised Jesus from the dead, he can never be replaced as our high priest. He abides as a high priest eternally forever. There will be no need to replace them. So now the author shifts from this encouragement to a painful observation about his audience. Remember, they're, they're in danger of abandoning what they have in Christ in favor of going back. What he has to tell them is going to sting a little, but it comes from the desire to help them see that the, da the danger that they are in. So, Looking at verse 11, the importance of hearing. He says, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Now the, the opening phrase there about this likely refers to what he had just mentioned before this passage, about Jesus being the high priest, a truer and better high priest of the order of Melchizedek. And he's saying, I have some really incredible things to teach you about this reality and how that impacts life here and now. I want to plumb the depths of that truth with you. I have some things for you to chew on related to this truth. 
And some of it is going to be difficult to explain, but it's made even more difficult by the fact that you are dull of hearing. Now that word dull is an interesting word. In the the Greek, it means sluggish or lazy. It refers to the idea of being lazy or sluggish in their hearing. It isn't that they haven't heard or that they can't hear. The problem lies in how they hear. The problem is is that they have become lazy or sluggish in their hearing. They haven't been careful to listen to what they have heard intently and to decipher what it means for how they live. Little application of what they have heard is now affecting them negatively. You know, yesterday I learned about something called lazy ear. You ever heard of that? Lazy ear? Now we have all heard, or perhaps you even know somebody that has a lazy eye. And what happens there is that during a certain stage of development, uh, the, the muscles on one side are stimulated of the face, are stimulated, and on the other side, not so much. And so the brain becomes very attuned to the one eye and it lets the other eye relax. Now the same thing can happen in hearing. If a child's hearing is impaired in one ear during early developmental stages, the brain learns to pay more attention to the one ear, the good ear, over the other. And this can lead to speech problems. It can, it can create problems with sound location, trying to figure out where something is coming from. And it can also create permanent hearing loss. And here are these believers facing the same difficulty. They have lazy spiritual ears. And they're getting worse. They're becoming more dull of hearing. He says, I want to dive into this with you, but I need you to wake up spiritually. I need you to listen to what I'm saying intently. And I need you to think about its implications for our lives. They've heard the basics of the faith, but they are not maturing. They're not developing as they should. Paul pointed out that Tom Schreiner has this really great comment in his commentary about this. He says this. This is quoting from Schreiner on his commentary on Hebrews. The entire problem lies in the spiritual inclination, or better, disinclination of the reader's. They are sluggish or dull or lazy and lethargic in their hearing. The readers won't understand the truth if they don't want to understand it. And so the fundamental issue facing the readers isn't intellectual, but it's moral. They're disinterested in the word of God. They're disinterested, lost interest in Jesus. Now, this is similar to what the author warned about in chapters 3 and 4. When he was warning them that hearing the good news about Jesus is only effective when it's mingled with trust or faith. Remember? He told them that when they heard, that when their ancestors heard the promise of all that God had in store for them in Egypt, though they left Egypt, they failed ultimately to trust him to actually do it. And as a result of their lack of trust, the first generation of people who had seen the deliverance in Egypt got right up to the promised land and was never actually able to enter in. They died in the desert. Only their kids would be able to enter in. And now here is this new generation of Hebrew followers of Jesus. And they also have heard the good news. But if they don't trust it, if they don't live into it, if they don't apply it, they are in danger of missing out as well. So what's the application for them and for us? Hearing 
is important. Taking in the word of God is important, but it is not to be, it's never meant to be, a mental exercise alone. It's not purely intellectual. It is also spiritual. It is also transformative. It is something that we are to live into. The word of God is meant to work its way into our lives and change us. It's it's meant to pierce past all of our defenses and begin to change us from the inside out. Quick question. Over the course of your life as a follower of Jesus, how many sermons have you heard? How many scriptures do you think that you have read How many Bible passages have you gone through over the course of your life? More importantly than that, how has the word of God changed you to make you more like Jesus? How has it shaped you? You see, the problem for most of us is not what we hear, but how we hear. How we hear is important. We're meant to do something with it. You see, scripture memorization or Bible reading or devotions, those those are all great, but hearing the word and doing nothing with it can actually create more of a problem. It makes us dull of hearing. Now, over the course of, you know, I've been a pastor now for 23 years. I've I've heard people say numerous times, man, I just, you know, I don't get anything out of the word. I'm not really getting anything from it. Could I offer maybe a suggestion? What's the last thing you heard? Maybe you should do that. Maybe you should go back to what you heard last because there's a sort of stop right there and go, you know, I don't think I obeyed that. I don't think I actually did that. Maybe it's a time to to revisit and go, man, the word of God is living, it's active, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's meant to pierce me and here I am sitting under the word of God and I can't be amazed by who God is. I, 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 my, my heart is not being awakened by the word of God. What is going on there? How is it that I have grown dull in my hearing? You see, the word of God should prompt us to the place of coming to God personally it should it should move us when we hear the scriptures to then run that through the filter of our lives and then begin to reflect upon it and start a conversation with God God in light of this truth what does this mean for me matter of fact I want to give you maybe four questions that you could ask this is just a, a practical side note here There are four questions that you can ask God through prayer that will help you to avoid growing dull of hearing. Okay, here they are. Number one, is there a reason to worship as a result of what I've read? Is there a reason to worship as a result of what I've read or heard? Is there a sin to repent and confess as a result of what I've read? Is there a sin to, con- to confess and to repent of as a result of what I've read? Is there a reason to give thanks because of what I've read? Number four, is there a truth to be applied because of what I've read? These are four questions that they, they, they bring you to the crisis of going, okay, I have heard the living word of God. Now, is it getting in me? How do I respond to the word of God? How do I respond to the truth that I'm reading? Is there, is there something in this passage or is there something in this sermon or is there something in this scripture from my devotions that would prompt me in this moment to respond to God in worship because of what that truth contains 
Or does it convict me? Is there sin to confess? Is there something I need to repent of? Is, 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 is there a reason that I should be giving thanks to God right now? And turning my heart to him and saying, Lord, because this is true, I am so thankful for what it means for me. And is there a truth to be applied? Is there something God is calling me to practice, to exercise, to live into as a result of this? Through reading or hearing the word of God, we are invited to step into life as God created it to be lived. Life with him. A life led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Life in dependence upon Christ and what he has done. Life in him and through him and to him for the glory of God. So what is the evidence then for saying that this Hebrew church is dull of hearing? What is the author going to give as evidence that they've grown dull of hearing? Notice in verses 12 through 13. For by this time, you ought to be teachers. But you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So here in verses 12 through 13, he, he emphasizes the importance of maturity. So the first piece of evidence that they have uh, known the gospel long enough that the first piece of evidence for them that there is a problem that they've grown dull of hearing is that they've known the gospel long enough that they should already be teachers. I want you to notice here the expectation. The author of Hebrews is not writing to pastors. He's not writing to clergy. He's writing to the laity, to the whole church. And he's saying that a mark of Christian maturity is to be able to take what you know and to train others with it. There's a clear expectation in this text that this is not merely a job for the professionals, for the educated, for those that have gone to seminary. This is a job for every believer. It's for all Christians. You know, this last week, I got to see a really cool glimpse of how this actually happens. I was, uh, on Monday of, of this last week, I was down at Black Rock. I had showed up a little bit early, and I was waiting for a friend of mine to show up so that we could sit down and have some conversation with one another. While I was waiting there, there was an older couple that was sitting right behind me. And they used to go to Heritage, so I know them. And uh, they were sitting there with their grandson. And, and so I'm, I'm sitting, I have my back to them, trying not to disturb them, you know, and, uh, and still appear friendly and engaging. And, you know, I'm doing all that weird pastoral stuff, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there, but I'm, I'm overhearing the conversation behind me. And the grandfather begins this conversation uh, with his son. He starts asking him questions. It was beautiful. The grandpa is asking questions of his grandson about Jesus. Not just general questions, but specific questions. I remember him saying, do you know why it's important to understand that Jesus was human? His grandson was probably, if I had to guess, eight, ten years old. And he's having this conversation with him. Grandson. No, not really. Grandfather replies, begins to explain to him for about five minutes or so. Grandpa breaks down how the humanity of Jesus causes us to know that he understands us. Begins to explain how his death as a human made payment for human sin. And how it shows that God is personally involved with us that he personally cares about our plight. He was willing to step into our mess and experience the mess of life as a human himself. He didn't just create an angel to come down or he didn't just create another being to suffer in our place. He absorbed that pain and that suffering himself. 
God is personally involved. And then he went on to explain that there's a lot of ideas about who Jesus is. Some bad ones too. And you should know this, grandson. For like five minutes, this grandpa is discipling his grandson. He's taking what he knows and he's teaching it to someone he loves. Listen, the whole world is your mission field. Now, you don't have to know everything. You don't. But what you do know is meant by God to be shared. It's meant to be cast like seeds into the hearts of the people around you. And what, what do you share? Share honestly, authentically, out of what is affecting you. How is the word of God affecting your heart and your life? Share that in conversation. Hey, listen, man, I was just, I was driving in the car and, you know, I was listening to Caleb and this scripture came on and, 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 and man, all of a sudden it made me reflect on this aspect of my life or it encouraged me about this, this promise that I've been clinging to for, for one of my unbelieving children or I, I, I've been thinking about this, this truth and how it intersects with my life and some you share out of what God is affecting you with and you cast those seeds into the hearts of the people around you you let them know how the word of God is shaping you how it's causing you to learn and grow how it's challenging you and you just watch you just watch what God does with that it's amazing when People authentically share the truth of God's word out of who they are, what God does with that. It's incredible. And this is a job for every believer. This is something we are all called to do, not just a preacher on a Sunday morning. It's living into the reality of where the word intersects with our lives. So the author of Hebrews expects that his readers should be teaching others. He expects that his readers should be teaching others. By this point, they should be at a place of maturity where they are sharing what they know, but they're not. And even more than that, they need a refresher course in the basics of the faith. He says to them, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. Now that phrase, the oracles of God, is a phrase that gets used in other portions of Scripture to talk about specifically the Old Testament Scriptures. It's a way of saying the things that God has spoken through humans. Now, this includes the law, the prophets, and what's called the the ketuvim in Hebrew writings. Ketuvim just means writings. That's the wisdom and poetry books of the Old Testament. But by, by relapsing back towards Judaism, the audience of this original letter is in danger of missing how the Old Testament pointed everyone to hope in Christ. Remember, remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 39? He looks at them and he says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So putting all this together, The author is saying to those Hebrew Christians, you should be teaching the principles that can be applied from the Old Testament for how to live under Christ. Instead, you are the ones who need this teaching. He expects maturation over information. This isn't just about how many scriptures you can quote, but it's about the principles from Old Testament that apply to the life of a saint, a a person who believes in Jesus, and how it is that they live in light of the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom. 
And, he, and he's saying to them, you should be teaching other people that, but you, we got to take you back to that place of learning again the first principles. You haven't matured. Your development got stuck. Notice the next phrase. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. He says, you, you are still the equivalent of children who are so small that they need to live on milk. Now, when my kids were little, uh, we, we would make up stupid little songs and, and talk to them in baby voices when we were changing their diapers. We would say to them, oh, did you make a poopy? Oh, you're such a cutie, you little poopy poopy, Right? And it's, and it's cute. I mean, it's still, it's a bad job, but it's cute. But listen, when my kids are 30, it's not cute anymore. It's not cute anymore. Matter of fact, I would say it's heartbreaking. Something has gone terribly wrong for them to be in that place. It's not cute anymore. It's evidence that something has gone terribly wrong. They have not matured in the way that they should have. They've been stunted in their growth. So here's, here's the idea from the author. I, I would really love to dig into the depths of the priesthood of Jesus with you, but, but you are lazy about hearing. You've stopped maturing the way that you should have. By this time, you, you should be teaching others. Instead, you guys are more like nursing infants. You need to be spoon-fed. These Hebrew believers needed to begin maturing past the milk and move on to some solid food. Now listen, the, the, the problem isn't that the milk is bad. The milk is great. It serves a purpose. It's important. It's just that they've been around long enough that they shouldn't need the milk anymore. They've not matured as they ought. And he goes on to say to them, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Listen, here's the picture. You guys are nursing adults. That's the picture. There's a problem here. This is a bad sign. Being in the church for 10 to 20 years and still needing a spiritual bottle feeding doesn't say anything about the quality of the gospel. It does, however, say something about the person hearing it, the person needing it. They are unskilled in the word of righteousness. They need to mature. They are called to grow. As a side note here, I think this is why easy believism is such a bad thing for the church. You, you guys know what easy believism is? It, it's this idea that, you know, the, the, the whole point of the gospel is to get out of hell. You just like pray this prayer, like some sort of magical incantation, and then, and then that's what makes you saved. And so oftentimes, especially when I was growing up in the church, it was like, well, did you ever pray to Jesus that you... You know, that he would save you from your sins. And that was like the end of the discussion. Well, you, you got out of hell, that's it. That's all that's necessary. This is, this is a poison for our way of life. It treats salvation as transactional. It teaches that the whole point of the gospel is to get you out of hell. Just pray this prayer. That, that idea doesn't lead someone into maturity at all. Listen, the point of becoming a Christian is to be born again into something. Not to stay a baby forever. To be born again into a whole new humanity. It is a call to grow in the likeness of Christ over the span of your entire life. It's a call to maturity. This, 
new birth, this being born again, will renovate every area. It will touch every area of your lives if you truly believe it, if you truly apply it. Listen, I cannot be a jerk of a husband and say that I trust the Scriptures. Because if I trust what the Scriptures teach me, then the Scriptures teach me that I'm to love my wife the same way that Christ has loved the church. I cannot be a demanding father and say that I trust the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures inform the way that I should be parenting, that I should not exasperate my children. I cannot say that I'm a, I'm a good Christian, I'm a mature Christian, and say that I don't love the church, I don't love the body of Christ. All throughout the scriptures, God proclaims his love for the body of Christ. He encourages, yes, even commands us to love the church. You see, the word of God is supposed to come into us and begin shaping the way that we think. And through practice, through exercise, through, through taking the word, assimilating it into my life, and choosing then to live in partnership with the word of God, I grow spiritually, I mature, I become like Jesus, I think like him. I love like him. I parent like him. I husband like him. I'm growing up into the maturity that is in Christ. It affects every area of life. To grow in Christ means that you will learn a new way to see the world around you. You will learn a new way to love, a new way to think, a new way to serve, and to live in this world. Being born again doesn't mean that, you, that we should say, stay eternal babies. We're called to gain skill, to spiritually mature, to, to live with Christ, expressing his heart through our lives. That's what it means to be a Christian. And the author uses the metaphor of, of solid food for the mature and milk for the infants to emphasize that spiritual maturity is necessary for growth and that this maturity is gained through constant practice of chewing on the deeper things found in the word of God. In other words, this is something they can practice. They can gain the skill. They can grow in their ability to digest what it is that they hear. They can train themselves to be weaned off the bottle. The author is reminding them that they're, they're loved by God and that they have the ability to become mature in their faith despite the difficulties that they're facing, despite the trials that they're under, the, the pressures that they're feeling. They can grab a hold of the scriptures and grow in the depth of their understanding of what it means to follow Jesus and it will be an anchor for their souls. Notice the next verse, in verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the last verse is a continuation of the eating analogy. Now, have you ever watched babies? They'll put anything in their mouths. They're curious. The, the, the one question that seems to be coming up in their minds, whether they can articulate it or not, is what does that taste like? Is it edible? To an infant, a bottle and a cat litter box have the same potential of a hot meal. They're undiscerning. And this seems to be what he's communicating here. It is through practice that you discover what is good for you and what isn't. Through practice, you can learn that certain teaching does not lead you into growing in Christ. This is what he calls evil. 
And some teaching is bad. It, it leads you towards religion. It leads you away from Christ and back towards Judaism. Other teaching is bad and it leads you towards self-reliance rather than dependence upon the gospel. That's bad teaching too. Good teaching leads you to a life of dependence on Jesus. And you need to know the difference. Now, specifically in this original audience, it appears that some of what was going on in this church was a teaching environment that was leading them backwards instead of forwards. It didn't see Jesus as the hope of the Old Testament scriptures because logically, if it did, they wouldn't need, the author wouldn't need to write this epistle to them to tell them, don't go back. What you have is better. If they were receiving good teaching, if they were hearing the word of God rightly understood, rightly divided, then they would be propelled to deepen their dependence upon Jesus. But they're in danger of going back. And here's here's the reality for you and for me, especially, guys, especially in the information age. We are never going to stop the enemy of our souls from putting out bad teaching or false teaching. It's never going to stop. I don't know if you've been on this thing, this new invention. It's called the Internet. It's the Wild West out there. You know, um, it's really interesting that if you have a bad idea, like a really bad idea, you can get on Google and find somebody else that has the same bad idea. Somewhere, someone on the planet has written a blog post about it or created a website all the way around it. And that sense of confirmation bias, oh, I'm not the only one that believes this. I must be right. Other people have come to my wise understanding as well. That sense of confirmation bias is toxic for us. It's bad for us. We're never going to stop the influx, influx of evil, of bad teaching, of false teaching in the world. I don't know if you knew this. In fact, did you know that during the 2020 election, 19 of the 20 most visited Christian uh, Facebook pages were actually discovered to be Russian troll farms? MIT put out their findings on that issue. 19 out of 20 of the top Christian Facebook pages were Russian troll farms. These Russian troll farms amassed 140 million visits from the U.S. alone. To, now, to give you an idea of how big that is, that, that, you know, we, when we get past 100, numbers sound all the same, right? Walmart.com got 100 million visits in the same year. False Christian Facebook pages got 140 million undiscerning visits from Christians in the United States. That's right, remember? Remember all the division that was happening during that season? Remember when it felt like the whole world had gone mad? That's actually the result of what is called asymmetrical warfare disinformation campaigns that are intended to cause division within a country, within a nation state. Guys, listen. We are living in an age where we are called to grow into maturity to such a place that we are discerning of what we hear. We can't prevent bad from coming out, coming to us. But not everything that comes to us do we have to put in our mouths. It it might be a treat. It might be a cat turd. (laughs) And we're supposed to grow to a place where we know the difference. We're called to maturity. So what do we do? We need to so saturate our lives with the word of God that we become discerning 
It reminds me of that old tried and true analogy of how bank tellers were trained to spot a counterfeit. Banks used to stick a new employee, a new teller in a room and have them just count money for days. They would handle bills and they just count them over and over and over and over again. And then they would come in and they would slip in a counterfeit bill. And the tellers who had been handling the real thing could tell that something was off. They could, they could feel the difference. The paper wasn't quite right. The, the, the ink looked just a little bit off. The color wasn't quite right. Something just wasn't right. And they could tell, what's up with this bill? It's not like the others. Here's the big idea from the author. One of the marks of maturity in the life of a believer is the ability to discern what teaching to swallow and what teaching to spit out. And we need to so saturate ourselves with the word of God that we become discerning in the world that we live in. Because I promise you, Google is not your friend when it comes to theology. If you're not discerning, you will end up in scary places in the internet. Russian troll farms and worse. One of the marks of maturity in the life of a believer is the ability to discern what teaching to swallow and what teaching to spit out. We are to become spiritually mature so that we're no longer, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.14, no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. How do we mature? How do we become discerning? One word. Practice. We handle the truth. We ponder its implications for our lives. We think it clear. We chew on it and chew on it and chew on it and chew on it and chew on it until we really understand what is there. We meditate upon the word day and night. We think about its meaning for our lives and how does it integrate? This isn't just facts and information. Me Is this being lived out? Is this true in my life right now? We practice, we handle the truth, we ponder its implications in our lives and how we live into its reality. And then we teach it to others. I'll tell you, one of the greatest gifts God has ever given me is putting me in a role to teach other people. I usually am about 15 minutes ahead of you guys. I'm touching up my final notes right before a Sunday morning. I'm like, man, this is good. Wish I'd have known that yesterday. When you begin to try and communicate what God is teaching you to someone else, it helps you to process, it concretes those truths into your life. Sharing what you are learning is an important part of learning it deeply and becoming discerning along the way. So in conclusion... The context of Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 is a letter written to a community of Jewish believers in Jesus Christ who are facing persecution and pressure to return to their traditional Jewish practices. And the author is addressing the problem of spiritual immaturity among these, among these believers and he's encouraging them to move beyond the basic teachings, teachings that he lists in the first few verses of chapter 6, and to really begin to chew on something substantial, to grow in their understanding and application of God's word, and to develop the ability to discern truth from falsehood. Why? So that they might live to the glory of God. This last week, Paul had his message totally prepared and, and then he let me know yesterday that he wasn't going to be able to, to make it this morning. He said, hey, here's my notes. Uh, go ahead and steal anything that you want. Take anything that you need that might be helpful for you. And he, he ended his teaching with some practical questions that I thought were just super good. Something I'd like for us to consider as we close this out today. Question number one. Am I growing Am I growing? Take an assessment of your life. Have you applied the milk truths 
that you know? Are you living into those? Have you responded in obedient faith to the basic principles or the elementary doctrines? Are you growing? Question number two. What milk truth that I've already received am I failing to put into practice? Is there something that God has been speaking to me? Is there, some, is there a lesson that you, you went, okay, I can go here and I'll go no further. And now that's hindering your growth? Maybe it's a time for you to go back and say, Lord, that last thing that you said to me, I'm not quite sure how to do this yet. And as a matter of fact, even my desire to do it is not there. But I want to want to do it. I want to live into this reality. So teach me. Show me how to integrate this truth into my life. You say that I should love in this way. You, should, you say that I should share in this way. You, you say that I need to grow in this godly character, this attribute of my life. It's a challenge for me. It runs contrary to the default settings of my sinful heart. But I want to, and I want to want to. And then just pick one, one truth that hasn't been integrated into your life. Begin practicing. Begin learning, chewing on, seeing how it changes things if you live into that reality. Then take it and share it with somebody else. See what God does through your life. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, so grateful for your word and how it is so practical in its instruction over our lives. I have to admit, Lord, that over the course of my life, I have heard countless sermons. I have read countless scriptures. I don't even know if I could put a number on that. And yet there are still many things that are not like Jesus in me. God, I confess my need to continually pursue growing and maturing. Right now, I pray over the body here that has heard your word that, that these words would be received at the deepest places of their heart, that they would sprout and grow and bear fruit, that as a community of people, we would not simply be those who are ineffectual hearers of the word and not effectual doers. Not that we're, we're saved by what we do, but if we trust your word, God, it bears weight. It means something for us. It means that there are aspects of our lives that you are going to exert your kingly and priestly authority over. May we bend with a soft touch from you. May we hear the voice of your spirit respond in joyful obedience knowing that you love us and that you've predestined that we should be conformed to the image of your son continue to shape us and as we worship you draw our attention to who you are how glorious you are God and bring our hearts directly to you in Jesus name Amen